I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 3. And as you're doing that, let me make a couple of just quick remarks to orient us this morning. You have your, your worship bulletin, correct, that you received on the way in. If you open the bulletin, you'll see sermon notes, and there you'll have the title, Wisdom from Above, our text for today, James 3, 17 through 18. You'll see I'm going to preach a good sermon because there are only three points, and we all know every good sermon has only three points. There they are, and then you'll see a little heading, Pastoral Insights, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. There were a couple of remarks last week that I wanted to make I could not get to. As you've probably guessed, there are a few mar- remarks today I want to make. I am putting these all together, and there they are, one through eight, and I've numbered them in the sermon notes because we all know if they're in the sermon notes, then it has to happen. So I am committing myself to getting to these eight pastoral insights today. Now, the second thing I want to do to orient us is to remind us of our prayer that little, uh, that little hymn that we are praying these weeks as we navigate um, this portion of the book of James. I'm thinking primarily of what he says beginning in chapter 3, verse 13, through to chapter 4, verse 12, because in these verses, he is going to deal with some problems head on, uh, problems that plague marriages families, friendships, and even local churches. I'm not going to give you the whole hymn again. If you'd like the words to that little hymn, by the way, you feel free to email me, and I'll make sure you get it. But just a couple of the stanzas, uh, the last two stanzas, I think will will serve our purposes. Uh, Here it is. O wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Wonder of all wonders. And so we are, we are enter, entering into the, the realm of the amazing, uh, the realm of the spectacular. Wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins and my secret sins can all forgiven be. Then melt Melt my heart, my heart, O Savior. Bend me, yea, break me down. Until I own Thee, Conqueror, and Lord and Sovereign, Crown. And so as I declared last Lord's Day, a melted heart is gripped, enthralled, captivated, and overwhelmed by the realization that in Christ Jesus, God has forgiven us our open sins and our secret sins. I also declared last Sunday that a melted heart is by definition a loving heart. It is a kind heart, a thoughtful heart, a gentle heart, a humble heart, a forgiving heart. And that is our prayer. It is our prayer again because of what James says beginning Again, chapter 3, verse 13, 
through to chapter 4, verse 12, and the problems that he is going to address. I believe that simple prayer, as expressed in that hymn, is the only remedy for the ailments he identifies. It is the only remedy. There is nowhere else to run. There is no other help under heaven. It is enough. It is more than enough. It is more than sufficient that as we own up to these problems, these issues as identified in this text, however painful that may be, that we find the answer in the shadow of Calvary's cross. We find the answer when we take a good, long, hard look at our open sins and perhaps more significantly our secret sins and we consider what it is God has forgiven us as Christians. Through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus, it leaves us in a melted condition. If I am not in a melted condition, if I do not have a melted heart, a kind heart, a thoughtful heart, a forgiving heart, an understanding heart, a gracious heart, it is because I am not being honest with myself. I am not owning up to what I really am. And I am failing to grasp the magnitude of God's forgiveness in Christ. And so that prayer, I'm going to remind you of it again as we move forward, especially as we get into the fourth chapter, but it will serve us well for our text today, still in the third chapter. Let me read from the 13th verse and go as far as the 18th. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice three things. There is a question in the 13th verse. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let me reword it. Are you wise? Yes or no? Don't shake your head or nod your head or raise your hand or whatever. But I'm asking you to answer that question right now at this moment. Are you wise? Yes or no? Are you wise? Am I wise? There is a question. There is an answer in the rest of the 13th verse. By his good conduct, let me personalize it, by your good conduct, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, if you are wise, and if I am wise, we will understand that this wisdom is firstly practical. It is manifested in conduct. We will notice, secondly, that it is moral. It is marked by meekness. And so you have a question, you have an answer, 
And thirdly, you have a comparison, a comparison. It's more of a contrast. And so in verses 14 through 16, James wants to make certain his audience gets what he is saying. The Spirit of God, by extension, wants to ensure that we understand what he is saying. There is a contrast, a contrast between wisdom that is from below or what we might identify as hellish wisdom, verses 14, 15, and 16. And then there is, secondly, a wisdom from above or what we might designate heavenly wisdom. They differ in three ways. Here are your sermon notes, points one, two, and three. They differ in their origin. That's the first thing. As we contrast these two, you go back to verse 14, you discover where wisdom from above comes from. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, there is the root cause, selfish ambition. It is what Jonathan Edwards identified as a problem that plagues all of us. Simply put, we desire to be uppermost. We desire to be uppermost. We want to be noticed. We want to be valued. We want to be prized. We want to be esteemed. We want to be admired. And so what we do is we use anything we can get our hands on in order to satisfy that desire. We will use our appearance, our looks. We will use our successes and our achievements. We will use our status and our wealth. We will use our abilities and capabilities. And even worse, we will dare to bring it into the realm of the spiritual. And we will use our gifts. We will use our ministries. We will use our causes, things which are good in and of themselves that we will employ to satisfy a deep-rooted, deep-seated desire known as selfish ambition. That is to have others think much of us. What happens when that does not happen? What happens when someone does not appreciate my ability? What happens when someone does not place the same value on my success, my position, my appearance, my attainments? What happens when someone doesn't appreciate my ministry, whatever it might be? What happens when someone doesn't get as excited about that cause that you're championing? What happens when someone doesn't buy in wholesale to whatever it is you've identified as being important in the realm of the spiritual? If you have attached selfish ambition to it, if you have attached your identity to it, if you've attached your spirituality to it, then woe that individual because they have just violated your sacred cow. They have not kissed it. Selfish ambition is now frustrated and selfish ambition will be manifested in what? Bitter jealousy. There is the origin, the cause, if you like, of wisdom from below. The contrast, wisdom from above, verse 17, just that, it comes from above. He's already told us back in chapter 1, verse 5, that if any of you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Pray. Why? Because wisdom comes from above. He's already told us in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes from 
above from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What is the greatest gift of all? He tells us in verse 18 of chapter 1 that this God, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, this God who is the Father of lights, this God who is the source of all goodness and therefore the source of this wisdom, He has caused us to be born again by the word of truth. Therefore, this wisdom that is divine by definition and heavenly in origin has nothing to do with us. Its source, its author is God himself. That's the first way in which these two wisdoms differ, a wisdom from below and a wisdom from above. And then James says, look, they also differ in their nature. And so the back, in the, back in the 15th verse, we see the very nature, the essence of wisdom from below. It is threefold description. It is earthly. It's of this world. It is unspiritual, and it is actually demonic. In marked contrast, the wisdom from above, what is it? 17th verse, an eightfold description of its nature, its essence. We're memorizing it together. Here it is quickly. Number one, it is pure. It reflects the goodness of God in its choices, in its pursuits, in its relationships, in its actions, in its dreams, in its ambitions, in its words. It is secondly peaceable. This wisdom is not contentious. It dispels grudges. It dispels rivalries. It dispels factions. This wisdom is gentle. It does away with harshness, unkindness, crustiness, abruptness. This wisdom is open to reason, says James. It responds to authority and it yields to persuasion. It is more than willing to comply. Numbers 5 and 6 I put together. It is full of mercy and good fruits, meaning it acts generously and compassionately toward others. And then number seven and number eight, it is impartial and sincere, meaning it is authentic and it hates hypocrisy. It hates hypocrisy. I want to make sure you notice a couple of things. I'm not going to elaborate on them. You can do this yourself. First of all, did you notice how closely this list parallels the Beatitudes? Very similar. Shouldn't shock us. James is the half-brother of the Lord. He heard the sermon. He knew the Beatitudes. They aren't exact, but they are very similar. The list he gives here closely paralleling that which we have back in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. The second thing I want to put out there for you, for your consideration, and for you to think on later is this. Whether it be the Beatitudes or this eightfold description of wisdom from above here, do you see the Lord Jesus? Do you see him? As you go back and you read the gospel narratives and you see how he engaged with people and you notice how he spoke with people, interacted with people, how he, how he handled people, 
whether it be the Samaritan woman or the leper or the paralytic or the demoniac or the, or, or the, 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 the man overcome with illness or the, or the woman who has that uncontrollable, uncontrollable bleeding. You go back and you, and you open any of the gospels to any portion and just ponder how the Lord Jesus interacted with people. How did he interact with the disciples? He didn't write off that bunch of nincompoops, did he? Oh, his patience and his gentleness and his tenderness and his long-suffering. How did he interact with his enemies? How did he interact with Pilate? How did he interact with those who opposed him? There is a word that you can write over this eightfold description. Again, it should come as no surprise to you because it is the word that James introduced back in verse 13. It is this, meekness. The meekness of wisdom. There is its nature differentiating it from that wisdom that is from below, that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The third difference is this. They differ in their fruit. What is the fruit or the result or, or the end, if you like, of that wisdom which is from below? Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The marriage will break down. The family will disintegrate. The friendship will end, and the church will come apart at the seams. There will be disorder. Again, it should not come as a surprise. This is Satan's goal. This is Satan's objective. It has been his objective ever since the fall to sow seeds of chaos and confusion, and the chief means by which he does that is selfish ambition, crossed frustrated, selfish ambition that then gives rise to bitter jealousy that then finds full fruition in disorder and every vile practice. What's the contrast? Wisdom from above, verse 18. What does it sow? A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make it is the difference between night and day, dark and light, heaven and hell. A wisdom that is from below, demonic essentially in origin, and a wisdom that is from above, simply divine. It is what James identifies back in the 13th verse, the mark of a wise man, the mark of a wise woman by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. We've arrived at the pastoral insights. All right? Eight of them coming up. I have been, I have been in pastoral ministry now for over 20 years. I don't look that old, do I? Over 20 years. Eight years now in the States and uh, eight years in Canada, five years in Portugal, and a year or two before that back in Canada, over 20 years. I've seen a thing or two. 
I've seen a thing or two. Um, I have navigated a thing or two. And pastorally, I want to stand before you and I want to say this, that in my 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, the greatest battles in which I have been engaged have not been over the doctrines of grace. They just haven't. They've had nothing to do with the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. No. Doctrine of election? Uh, No. Meaning of the atonement? No. Oh, how I wish I could stand before you and say the opposite. I wish I could say, I really wish I could say, the greatest battles in which I have engaged have been over the truth. A doctrine the gospel, but it has not. The greatest battles and the most unpleasant experiences by far that I have been through in over 20 years of pastoral ministry have been rooted in this text. This text. Right here. This is it. The birth of selfish ambition that has given rise to bitter jealousy, unchecked bitter jealousy, that has then resulted in disorder. That is true of my pastoral ministry in general. It has also been true of my ministry as I have engaged with individuals and couples and families. That in this text, we find the root cause of so much of what ails us. And so I'm going to dip back into 20 years of experience for what it's worth, and I'm not claiming to have a corner on this market or have it all figured out, but I do want to give you eight pastoral insights, and I pray the Lord continues to teach me these and that He impresses these upon us here at Grace Community Church. So here they are, number one. Wisdom is seed. Three words. You didn't mishear me. Wisdom is seed. That's all there is to it. You get that out of the 18th verse. A harvest of righteousness is sown. It is the idea of seed in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom. Wisdom produces something. Always Always, always. It always produces something. It is seed that is sown. And something blossoms and something grows. That is true of wisdom from below. And it is true of wisdom from above. We cannot contain wisdom. It is impossible to contain it maintain it, keep it under, keep it under our control, our influence. No, wisdom is seed. And that seed will sooner or later germinate and there will be a result. When it comes to wisdom from below, that seed which is sown always, always, always results in relational chaos, relational turmoil, Relational disorder and relational confusion, always. The wisdom from above that is sown always results in righteous 
peacefulness. Righteous peacefulness. It is true. Mark it, please. It is true of marriages. It is true of families. It is true of friendships. And it is true of churches. That's my first pastoral insight. Wisdom is seed. Here's the second insight. Selfish ambition explains much more than we care to admit. Selfish ambition explains much more, exceedingly, exceedingly much more than we care to admit, than we dare to admit. We want to be uppermost, right? We've been down this road a couple of times now. Let's review it because it is of utmost importance. It is the desire to be uppermost, the desire to be noticed, to be thought well of, and by extension, the desire to have something identifiable in our lives by which we grade our spirituality and our godliness in the sight of God. We want it. We desperately want it. And we want others to acknowledge it, if not downright bow down to it. It explains far more than we care to admit. Envy. Envy. Malice. Where does it come from? It comes from that desire to be uppermost. Anxiety. Where does it come from? It comes from the desire to be in control. Discouragement. Where does it come from? It comes from the conviction that we think we deserve better. Why do we think we deserve better? Bitterness. Where does it come from? comes from the conviction that we think we've been unfairly treated. Discontentment, where does it come from? Simply this, we wish people would notice us or value us at least as much as we value ourselves. The list goes on and on and on, my friends. You take any of them, take any of them right now, if you dare, take any of them. And you connect the dots and you will find yourself invariably right back at this starting point, selfish ambition. That all of these things arise from a completely skewed, out-of-whack self-perspective. The third pastoral insight is this. Selfish ambition loves others for its own sake. This is, a tr- this is very troubling, this one. Selfish ambition loves others for its own sake, not Christ's sake. It soon shows itself. Selfish ambition loves others for its own sake, not Christ's sake. You see, selfish ambition wants to impress. It wants to control. It wants to conquer. It wants to dominate. Lurking, that is what it wants. As it seeks to satisfy its deep-rooted desire for self-exaltation to be uppermost. Even. Even when serving and ministering in the context of a church, selfish ambition is searching for something. Even when serving and ministering, it's searching for something. Even when expressing an opinion, selfish ambition is searching for something. Even when defending a doctrine, selfish ambition is searching for something. Even when championing a cause, selfish ambition is searching for something. 
How do you know when it's selfish ambition? You know it's selfish ambition because when someone does not appreciate my ministry, my cause, whatever it is I have identified through which I am seeking to satisfy that selfish ambition, I will turn that thing into a club by which I will club that individual. That's what we do. You may be, this may be very good for you to ask yourself at this juncture, well, well Stephen, how have you figured this out and, and, and can I so readily identify this? Because it's a path well-worn in my own experience, friends. I'm under no disillusion. I can remember graduating from college, having studied international development studies, and heading off for three years, engaging in relief and development and alleviating the world's problems and feeding the poor and drilling wells and, and, and working for political reform in all these countries and being all excited about it and not understanding why other Christians weren't as excited as I was. It became a club because it was something I now identified as a step in my spirituality. You weren't acknowledging it. Therefore, my desire to be uppermost, even through something which was legitimate, was now crossed, and it became a club through which I beat you over the head. And then it was being a missionary. Why isn't everybody as interested as me in the Portuguese-speaking world? Why isn't everybody doing what I'm doing? Why isn't everybody on board and talking about what I'm talking about, engaging in what I'm engaging, and being excited about what I'm excited about? Because what I was doing, I was using as a means to an end, yes, a legitimate ministry, but something I had identified. I was placing self-value in and upon. And even my status in God's sight, sense of self-worth, my desire to feed that longing to be uppermost. And people dared to not get as excited as I was about the Portuguese-speaking world. What did they become the object of then? bitter jealousy. Then what do you have? Relational breakdown. And something that was very good in itself became a club. A club, a bat. You get the idea. We do it and we do it all the time. We love others for selfish ambition, loves others for its own sake, not Christ's sake. And it's a desire to impress, control, conquer, and dominate, even through legitimate things. When it does not get what it wants, it will quickly morph into contempt for others. Quickly morph, which shows you what? I don't really love you for Christ's sake. I only love you for my own sake and what I'm trying to get out of you to satisfy myself. Oh, the fourth pastoral insight is this. Selfish ambition constructs its own image of other people. It constructs its own image of other people about what they are and what they should be. It observes, it classifies, and it judges people accordingly. It seeks to satisfy its desire to be uppermost by comparing itself with others so that it can condemn others always adopts a competitive position. Selfish ambition always needs a cause. It always needs a doctrine. It always needs an opinion. It always needs a ministry. It must have something. And it will move from one thing to another. But something that puts up a barrier between you and me by which I can classify you, judge you, and dismiss you. All in an attempt to do what? Satisfy my own. Selfish ambition. The fifth pastoral insight is this. 
Selfish ambition masks itself in zeal. Zeal. So I might be using my ability, I don't know. Might be using appearance, success, I don't know. I might even be using my family, I don't know. I might be using my ministry, but there is something I am putting it all on. I'm doing this, I'm believing that, I see this, you don't. Um, You don't see it, you don't acknowledge it, you have now crossed my desire to be uppermost as I am seeking it through these things. If that selfish ambition is not checked and repented of right there, you know where it goes, James tells us, bitter jealousy and then disorder. The problem is this, and let me get very personal. The problem is this. If I have invested my sense of self-worth in my ministry, let's say preaching, for example, if I I am somehow before God identifying my sense of self-worth or spiritual achievement or attainment on the basis of my ministry or on the basis of my children or on the basis of something else I'm involved in, right? And you dare to criticize that thing, right? Or you dare to not get on board embracing it as I embrace it. Uh, You have crossed me. I must vent if I don't mortify that selfish ambition and bitter jealousy takes root and leads to disorder. I must vent. But the problem is this. You think in terms of my ministry. I I can't come back at you on the basis of my ministry or whatever it is I have identified because that would be to acknowledge my problem. You see where I'm going here? That would be to acknowledge the source of my problem. So what do I have to do? I have to come at you sideways. I need to find some other moral high ground somewhere from which I can minimize you in order to, again, maximize me. I will seek the moral high ground from which I can launch my attack in the name of zeal. I can dismiss you. I can now dismiss you. I can now criticize you. And I can do all this cloaked in spirituality. This is when selfish ambition becomes most heinous, most destructive, and most diabolical. Here is the sixth pastoral insight. Told you, over 20 years. Over 20 years. Number six. True wisdom. True wisdom bears eight marks. This is it. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Go back to the question in verse 13. Who is wise? Are you wise? Am I wise? I'm going to give you a bunch of questions. I'm going to use the second person singular. Um... I'm going to do that because I've already asked myself these questions this past week, the first person singular, and the answers I will keep to myself. But um, here they are for you. Are you contentious? Are you contentious? If so, you are not wise. I think that's an obvious inference from the text. 
Are you abrupt and crusty? You are not wise. Are you unwilling to reason and listen? You are not wise. Do you simply rearrange your prejudices when confronted? You are not wise. Are you not, are you not compelled to show mercy and compassion towards your brothers and sisters? The answer is no, you are not wise. Do you put up barriers between you and other Christians? If so, you are not wise. Are you always looking to win an argument, prove your point, whatever? If so, you are not wise. Are you prepared to divide the people of God simply to get your own way? You are not wise. Do you fail to sow righteous peacefulness? The answer is yes. You are not wise. True wisdom bears, of necessity, bears eight marks. Seventh pastoral insight. Peace. This righteous peacefulness, as it's described there in the 18th verse, is a precious gift that is to be eagerly guarded. A precious gift. To be easily guarded. Every decision I make as a member of Grace Community Church, every decision I make in my marriage, in my family, every decision I make that might impact friendships should, ought to be based upon what brings peace without compromising biblical truth. What makes peace? without compromising biblical truth. We are not to tolerate moral or doctrinal evil. Neither are we to tolerate disputes which arise from selfish ambition. Here's some questions I was asking myself a couple of days ago. Do I want Grace Community Church to be full of peacemakers? A community full of peacemakers. Do I want Grace Community Church to be a place where people listen to others, share their burdens of life? Do I want Grace Community Church to be a place where people aren't judged by their conformity to me, my ways, my ideas, my opinions? Do I want Grace Community Church to be a place where I find What I can never find in this world, shalom, righteous peacefulness, relational peacefulness. And the eighth and final pastoral insight, here it is. And this one shouldn't shouldn't come as a surprise. We're coming full circle now back to our prayer. A melted heart is the necessary starting point for the cultivation of wisdom. A melted heart. Heart. You think of that candle or wax in the hot summer sun, just melted, dripping. And where does it come from? Here's that prayer again. O wonder of all wonders that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins can all forgiven be. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Bend me, yea, break me down until I own thee conqueror and Lord and Sovereign Crown. Do we have a sense of God's forgiveness? 
we're not going to be able to we're not going to be able to make any progress when it comes to the competition that exists between these two wisdoms from below and from above without a deep-rooted sense, sense, spiritual relish, if you like, as Edwards used to say, a spiritual relish of what it means to be forgiven by God in Christ Jesus. Do we have a sense of God's delight toward us in Christ Jesus? Not us in and of ourselves but his pure, unbridled delight for you as a Christian, one who stands in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand how much he delights in you, in Christ? Do we have a sense of his favor toward us in Christ? Do we have a sense of what it means to be reconciled to the living God? And are we gripped? enthralled, captivated, and overwhelmed with Christ? If so, we will be less defensive. We will be more willing to make peace. We will stop holding grudges. We will extend grace to those who've let us down. And dare I say, expect grace from those whom we've let down. We'll stop holding grudges Stop being so judgmental, always looking for the wrong in others. We'll start giving people the benefit of the doubt. We'll be thankful for what is good rather than always harping on what is wrong. We'll stop being so negative. We'll stop being so self-protective. We'll stop pouting. We'll stop building our little kingdom. We'll stop insisting that everyone conform to us, our ways, our ideas, and our opinions. We will jealously, notice the play on words, we will jealously guard brotherly love. For in the words of A.W. Pink, it is a tender plant which requires much attention. If it is not watched and watered, it quickly wilts, quickly wilts. Eight pastoral insights. Here's our text again. Let me read it. And then I will close with a word of prayer. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Our Father, we pray you come now and impress your word upon us. Give us a heart to love it more. Give us a heart to love all that you command. And our Father, give us greater faith to embrace all that you promise. We ask that your Spirit might be active, might be working in us. And that by your word this day, your kingdom might come, your will might be done in us. And we pray and ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.